Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 107. It's Henry here. I hope your fall is going well. Mine's been pretty typical for me. My uh, my apologies for the slow trickle of new episodes recently. My health has slowed me down a good bit, which if you follow the podcast is very on the nose for me, but uh, I'm plugging forward in whatever way I can. Tom Secker is here today to uh, talk with us about The Rock the 1996 film starring Sean Connery, uh, Nicolas Cage, and Ed Harris. Um, Here's a real short synopsis. A uh, rogue U.S. Marine general in command of a squad of special ops Marines takes a group of tourists hostage on Alcatraz Island, which, of course, is the uh, former Civil War fort and notorious prison where Al Capone, among others, were imprisoned. Before I get to our discussion with tom i want to preview the next few episodes just for a second um next uh, kagan and i will be talking with lisa ling a former intel analyst and whistleblower who's worked extensively with drones she is one of the subjects of the documentary national bird it also includes uh, daniel hale as a participant there with uh, several other drone whistleblowers and uh, me following that, I'm very excited to say I have an outstanding discussion uh, between myself and journalist Spencer Ackerman, author of the new bestseller, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And now, let's get on with the podcast. Tom Secker, welcome back to Fortress on a Hill. Thanks for coming to chat with me, dude. Oh, thanks for having me again, Henry. I always love talking to you. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I think we've got a really good one here today. The uh, you know reaching into those those '90s um, action thrillers have so so many of them that were were filled with that. But there's some there's some interesting interesting uh, variations here that I think people are going to be uh, interested to hear about, especially if they you know take in you know Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, all those those kind of things. But um, you had a few a few thoughts that uh, we were going to get started with. Um, what 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 uh, what do you got, Brian? Well, when I was rewatching this film, because I haven't seen it in probably decades, to be honest, um, you suggested this, and I thought I remember this film quite fondly um, as a you know silly entertainment film. It does deliver on exactly what it's trying to do. Sure, um, it is a fun movie. It's totally over the top. It's a completely absurd film, but it's not trying to be a grounded, totally realistic film. Um, most of those 90s action movies and 80s action movies aren't. Um, so you kind of have to take it at, you know, 
what is it trying to be? Is it actually achieving that? And when I was rewatching it, I was laughing like crazy, I have to say, particularly the first hour of the movie, the whole setup. Things like when they first go and get Sean Connery out of prison and he's got this long shaggy hair, but his beard is surprisingly well trimmed. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, nonetheless, I thought you were right. This is an interesting movie. There's a lot buried in bits of dialogue that are kind of then rather quickly moved on from into whatever the next action sequence is. But nonetheless, there's, there's stuff in here that's really quite interesting. And when you actually look at the background of some of these characters and the motivations that they're given, while they're not explored in depth and they don't have great character arcs and all that, you can't expect that from this sort of movie. They could have given them any number of reasons for doing the things that they did. And the reasons that they chose were quite interesting. And it made me wonder, it's like a lot of these late 80s and 90s action thrillers. I'm thinking Die Hard 2 is one of these. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a ridiculous mess of a film, but an interesting subtext. I mean, I don't particularly like Die Hard 2, and some of my listeners give me a hard time over that. Maybe I am misjudging the movie. I'm, you know, whatever. But that film... Um, what was the other one I mentioned before we started recording? Uh, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon, yeah. Like Lethal Weapon makes references to the Phoenix program. Mel Gibson's character, he has a background as like a assassin, um, a military black ops assassin type of thing. And you kind of wonder, even then, did anyone know what the Phoenix program was? Hardly anyone now knows what the Phoenix program is, unless they've read Doug Valentine's book, which, you know, some people have, but not that many. Um, that it seems to me that this was partly a reaction to Iran-Contra, but also to other things that came out in the 80s about the 60s and 70s, you know, CIA in Cuba, in Vietnam, you know, all these sorts of things um, that just like 1970s conspiracy thrillers, Three Days of the Condor being one of my favourite films ever, um, were a reaction to things like the Church Committee, the widespread suspicions over the assassinations of MLK, JFK, RFK, and several other events in the 60s and early 70s that people had, Watergate obviously, had a lot of suspicions over. That whole American conspiracy thriller genre was a cinematic reaction to that. I see these 80s and 90s thrillers as to some extent a cinematic reaction to Iran-Contra and other things that were coming out at the time because There's no necessary reason to get into shadow government, black ops, that sort of world in a film like this or in a film like Lethal Weapon or Die Hard 2 or, you know, you can come up with any goddamn reason you like why the bad guys are doing what they're doing. So to construct a narrative like this, where essentially the guy is seeking some kind of vengeance, but also restitution for people who died on black operations that the Pentagon denies even took place. So they're certainly not acknowledging what happened to these people. Um, There's actually quite an interesting kicking off point. It's a much more elaborate motive for a bad guy to have, for one thing. And for another, it actually situates this whole narrative, which is otherwise completely absurd, in real things that the Pentagon doesn't want people talking about. Um, So, if you can forgive um, 
the very Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay nature of this movie. I mean, God damn it, the soundtrack is essentially the same soundtrack as they used for Enemy of the State. Um, the music is almost exactly the same. I'm pretty sure it'll be the same composer. Um, the whole thing is very, um, it's like every other Jerry Bruckheimer film. Um, another one, not in quite the same vein, but I think similar, you know, it sort of fits into this subgenre that I'm talking about, is Crimson Tide, another Jerry Bruckheimer film. On the surface, very nationalistic, tub-thumping movie, action thriller movie, but it does have this whole mutiny on board a nuclear submarine thing, you know, this almost loose nuke scenario. Again, something the Pentagon's very touchy about, but which did become more of a concern in the 80s and 90s, um, that people became more aware of like just how close we've come on several occasions to almost accidentally starting a nuclear war. So to have a film about that is also kind of controversial and not necessarily something you need to put in an action thriller set on a nuclear submarine. You can do any number of things on that. But, you know, instead, some of these writers and filmmakers were actually taking somewhat subversive creative choices here. Even, as I say, Jerry Bruckheimer, of all people. Well, I, I think this is an important moment for me to make a little confession, which is I loved The Rock so much as a kid I actually bought the soundtrack with the with the music so that there would be times I would be in my brain watching Nicolas Cage ram a Ferrari into uh, into parking meters. But I'm just <laughs> listening to the music. I, 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 I really digged it. And I, I don't I don't remember exactly why, but I just didn't just watch rewatch the movie instead of listening to the music. But. Anyways, tells you a little bit about about 90, 90s era Henry. Um, <laughs> no, it's all right. I had some pretty terrible culture choices in the nineteen nineties. Thinking back, some of the music I owned, I, I, I'm not even going to admit to it now. <laughs> that's how shameful it is. Um, but I I agree with you on the both the rock and. Um, just just a handful of other films that that I think truly did something um, subversively intelligent like this movie um, that really actually brings in some history and that for people that are not entirely uh, history phobic that they there's there's actually things to see here to understand the connections between things um, so I wanted to before we start talking about the movie itself, I wanted to bring in some some characters to follow. And it characters, not simply the, the film's characters, but some of the themes that are going on with it because they're um they go back and forth quite a bit. And this is this is considering that the first the first um version of the script was much more critical and much more um nuanced, I think. In, in some of its stuff, and I have a few uh, things that I'll read as, as we go on. But anyway, here's the, the characters I'd like everyone to, to follow for this. First is um, Vietnam Syndrome, that there is a, there is a, a definite underlying um, connection to that from Hummel and his men in terms of, you know, did we, did we do enough? Did we fight hard enough? Did 
um does does the country appreciate our sacrifice enough you know it, it, it's those those kind of general themes second well, is, and I felt, oh I go ahead man there. go ahead sorry i felt that there was also a touch of bringing the war home because of that yes that like because they didn't yes. feel the job was done that's why they have to continue the war yep. and so you i mean i know it's a cliche vietnam vet bringing the war home but you know how does a cliche become a cliche um and i did think they were playing on some of those you know latter period vietnam films that actually mm. dealt with some of that stuff often from quite a sympathetic point of view um not this film there is no no compassion at any point really for anyone in this movie sadly but um yeah i thought that was kind of the underlying logic to it as well like i say that they felt that because the war wasn't won and it should have been that's why the battle must continue yeah yeah i, I would i would definitely agree um so next the um we have a couple of um of uh, weapons tactics from the vietnam war itself um there's there's some discussion in this movie about napalm there's the the secondary initiative as they refer to it trying to jerry rig something called thermite plasma into uh some bombs that they can blanket the island um the however the um the original script has um instead of the thermite plasma that they invented they actually have white phosphorus which white phosphorus as a as a weapon um sometimes referred to as just wp or uh, willie peter in the in the military is a is a horrifying and and terribly used weapon especially in the vietnam war but also in other other wars as well um next we have just our our collective of special ops teams and three-letter agencies uh, first and certainly foremost for the story is marine force recon which has a very big history in in vietnam you have the seals which uh they weren't created i don't think when vietnam began but the um uh, the the frogmen teams that they had there were eventually what became the Navy SEALs. And then uh, you have the FBI, which I, I just realized this morning is that after the SEALs actually make it to the island, the FBI's role is basically done, other than communicating back and forth with people. Um, they, they really, I mean, they're, they, they certainly have uh, a lot in the background going on, but in terms of what the what the overall status of the story is, you know, moving forward, so... Yeah, yeah, it just becomes a military um, story in effect from that point on. Yeah, yeah, um, but I wanted to throw those out there because it, it throughout the film, all of these different topics and groups definitely get um, get character treatments in their own way, and they definitely contribute to the the overall story. Sorry, I'm having a really <laughs> muggy brain day, but I, I'm I'll, I'm just gonna keep reading. It's fine, man. All right. So let's talk about Frank Hummel, Brigadier General Francis X. Hummel is what he says to the FBI director telling him that he has taken these guys from uh, or taken hostages on uh, Alcatraz. So as I mentioned, Marine Force Recon had a huge aspect, a huge role in the Vietnam War, specifically as small four, five, six man teams that were doing stuff. Um, behind enemy lines, gathering intelligence, 
um, all that kind of stuff. The line they referred to for Hummel in the movie was that he was the greatest battalion commander in the Vietnam War. I shit you not. Um, so the original script helps helps streamline this out, out a little bit. It talks about that at one point during, um, during the Tet Offensive in 1968, which of course was some of the worst fighting that happened um, in the Vietnam War, they said that he held off a thousand VC fighters at one point by himself. So we're, we're really shoot, shooting for the top echelon here in terms of, of movie heroes and how much damage they, they've done. I don't even know if Mel Gibson being in the Phoenix program and Lethal Weapon would, would qualify for that. Um, but the movie, the final finished portion of the movie doesn't outline exactly what all Hummel did in his career. And, and there's a little more to it as I, I'm talking about him here. Um, but in terms of just that the, the, they wanted the finished product of the movie, they wanted us to just say this is a, a Vietnam War hero, that this guy just, he carried a load far beyond what other, what other men did or what other men were, were capable of, you know, just put, putting them high up there in the sky. In the sky. Um, and, and the line that he got the Congressional Medal of Jesus, um, which I yeah, thought was a great bit of dialogue. Um, it it well, was, well, it was. Better, the... better delivered than I just did. But um, I was also wondering, why isn't there a Congressional Medal of Jesus? There should be one. Congressional Medal of what? Jesus. <laughs> there should be. There should be. I'm going to write my congressman. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, there, there really should be. Um, but the, the Vietnam War, you know, and, and Hummel's role in it kind of answers the, the next question that I had was, which was, how does this, this man justify targeting fellow Americans, um, both the hostages that his men have taken and the people in San Francisco who the, the chemical weapons, the VX rounds are, are pointed at? How does he justify uh, the possibility of killing that many more thousands? many times beyond the number of men he lost. Well, it's, it's real simple. He was in Vietnam. That the policy of attrition, of believing that dead enemy fighters meant that the strategy was working at any, any given moment, it makes perfect sense that he would be entirely blind to this. That, it, that you know, some... some I'm, uh, the um, first battle of Fallujah that happened during the Iraq war when four uh, contractors uh, were murdered and that the military and the, the coalition there responded very, very harshly against the enemy. I, that, that's up for opinion. If people think it was a, a good call, bad call, um, just in terms of the loss that we're willing to expect or accept in terms of our trying to make the mission move forward, trying to win the next objective, trying to convince the public that this is a, an acceptable thing. Um, what did you, how did you interpret that, Tom, that his, his inability to see what he was really trying, to, you know, what he was really doing and his, his motivations? You see, on the one hand, I was thinking, why always San Francisco? Is it because, you know, Hollywood is secretly ultra right wing and hates gay people or something, you know, doesn't like the fact that San Francisco is full of hippies? Because mm -hmm. um, that does, there is a 
kind of undercurrent of fascism to this movie mm-hmm. um, that is quite at odds with an awful lot of what else is going on thematically. That's one of the things that makes it quite an interesting watch is that I'm not quite sure what the hell they were trying to say here. Mm-hmm. It seems they were trying to say something and maybe that is clearer in the original script before um, it, I assume, got simplified and somewhat watered down. Um, but yeah, with that character, it is that, I mean, at one point, I think Sean Connery's character calls the, them a bunch of sociopathic Marines. And certainly most of the Marines in this squad that takes Alcatraz Island behave quite sociopathically and do just follow orders and don't seem to care. Um, they're almost like a you know arch stereotype of you know the military character. Um, I mean, Hummels is a bit different because obviously he's more fleshed out and it's a better actor and all of that kind of thing. So with him, yeah, it is. It's this kind of it's a means to an end that I felt there was also a touch of he is like genuinely crazy or has been driven somewhat crazy mm-hmm. by all of this horrible shit that he's done for the government. Um, <clears throat> but also that it kind of makes sense. If you're looking at the world from his perspective, where you've spent your life basically doing whatever it takes in order to try and accomplish your objective, you've lived in that world of pure cynicism, pure means to an end, rather than actually worrying about whether that end is even worthwhile or accomplishable or you know, any of those questions. You're just an operative, an on-the-ground guy. Of course this would make sense to you. It isn't even from your perspective terrorism, no. because it's more like extortion, to be honest, because he's trying to extort something from the government. He's trying to extort from them, firstly, $100 million or something, but also a kind of admission as to what's actually happened here. and. Yeah, I mean, he, again, he's a really weird character because he does live in that, you know, very cynical means to an end world. But at the same time, there is this notion of trying to, um, like, cosmic justice that he's seeking here, maybe, mm-hmm. or at least some kind of admission and some kind of truth and justice and reconciliation and, you know, being able to move on. And okay, this is a utterly crazy way to try to accomplish that. But, like I say, from his perspective, it sort of makes sense because he is this strange combination of, it's like someone who's been pushed so far by the grim, cynical realities of living in that world that he's almost become idealistic because it's the only way out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's reaching for something greater, but because he's still living, ultimately, he is the man that he is, he has lived the life he has, these are the means that are at his disposal. Mm-hmm. He's not the sort of person who's going to bring a lawsuit or go to the media or any of that kind of thing. He's the sort of guy who's going to steal a bunch of VX gas from an incredibly poorly guarded naval weapons station. Right. Um, I mean, seriously, that thing's got a chain link fence. Um, and then hijack Alcatraz. I, I mean, what do you even call it? They take over, they invade Alcatraz Island um, and point a bunch of rockets at San Francisco. I mean, again, Sean Connery at one point tells him that, you know, he's crazy, he's a fucking idiot. 
they bother to tell you who I am, why I'm doing this, or are they just using you like they do everybody else? All I know is you were big in Vietnam. I saw the highlights on television. And you wouldn't have any fucking idea what it means to lead some of the finest men on God's earth into battle and then see their memory betrayed by their own fucking government. I don't quite see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million. And uh, this is not combat. It's an act of lunacy, General Sir. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. Tree of Liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson. Patriotism is the virtue of the vicious, according to Oscar Wilde. Well, thank you for making my point. And on the one hand, he is. But on the other hand, like I say, what other means are at his disposal? He doesn't know any how to do anything else nope. in many ways. So what the hell do you expect someone like that to do? So in many ways, what the film is saying is the answer to the problem of something like this potentially happening is maybe don't create these people in the first place, you know, rather than having to go through all of this palaver with Sean Connery and, and Nicolas Cage and the, and the napalm and then, oh no, we can't use napalm because it's the X and all the rest of it, is maybe this guy's actually a tragic figure because he's not portrayed as evil. No. Right? We're not supposed no. to hate this guy. Some of the Marines are pretty evil, um, but they're one-dimensional. They don't really matter. Um, he, I actually end up feeling quite sorry for him. In fact, I kind of feel sorry for him throughout the whole thing. At no point did I really fear and hate him. He's not a movie villain in that sense. And I'm certain that's not what they were trying to do because if it was, you know, it's Bruckheimer and Michael Bay. They're not subtle. So, yeah, yeah. yeah that's where I'm coming from with that. Well, here's one point where the original script would have would have made this much better. That in the speech that he gives to the Marines prior to them taking their positions and him calling the FBI director and saying, hey, we've got Alcatraz and all the people that were there, yada, yada. Um, that he tells his Marines that upon the completion of their mission, he is going to surrender. He is going to stay there and accept responsibility for what happened. Um, and let me get to the, let's see the actual, they're talking about, um, this country has places where wrongs are redressed, Captain Darrow. They're called courts of law. In the military, they're called courts martial. This country has places where lessons are learned. They're called schools. Um, the only accurate term for what we are doing here is treason, plain and simple, an insurrection against the government to which we have sworn allegiance. Everyone in this room must understand that. The question is, what kind of traitor are we? Coward or lion? Benedict Arnold or Thomas Jefferson? I have posed that question to myself, have answered it, and my conscience is clear. Within 32 hours, you will leave this country and not return. Can all of you live with that? And of course, they scream at him, yes, sir. And he says, well, I cannot. So regardless of what happens on this island, in the hours ahead, I will stay. And one of the captains says, uh, but General, you'll be prosecuted. And the General says, yes, Captain. And I plan on conducting my own defense. It will make the O.J. Simpson trial look like an episode of Perry Mason. Take your... <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Take That's your poster. It is pretty good. That is pretty good. They shouldn't have cut that. They should have put that somewhere else. Um, take your post, gentlemen. Semper Fi. And so you're 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 left with this port this portrait of of a leader who understands as much as I think a human being can understand what's going to happen, and that his choice to do it is one that he's willing to stomach. That he's not he's not willing to subject any more of his men to um to not knowing what the deal is, to not knowing what they will get in return for for their for their time for fighting with their with their comrades and such. Um and the, also you had mentioned about going to the media that in the in the final film in the opening montage when he's going to the cemetery to visit his wife's grave he talks he said he talks about um there's a there's a um committee there's a armed forces committee that he was testifying to in it um i didn't hear him say anything like he was talking to a reporter or anything so i'm guessing that whatever this committee was it was done classified that it was it was entirely a secret he complained to what he perceived out there but um sorry hold on one second my sound thing changed it setting on me all right so it's all good so um so he, he it seems that he he truly feels that every avenue that he has to deal with the men that that were left behind has been exhausted and and why he is is able to come to alcatraz to do what he does and and I agree with you completely. Is I don't I don't see him as a villain. You don't see him as someone who genuinely wants to hurt people for the sake of hurting people. Um, and you also see that too throughout the the finished film, when following the the ambush between the seals and the marines in the in the shower room. Remember, he grabs that guy's camera and looks into it. And uh, let's see, what did he say? I didn't even have to rewatch this movie, Tom. I've seen it that many times. Uh, um, he was like, uh, you've made a terrible mistake and more of our brothers have died in vain. Damn you for forcing me into this position. Um, you know, he, he does, he has a, he has a conscience and he understands what he's in control of. He understands the damage that it can do. He is not at all naive about the effects of a VX gas rocket. There's not, you know, it, it, he, he knows that it does, but we don't hold it against him because we understand what he's trying to do on the other side of that. Um, here's our second uh, edition from the uh, original script, which I think is, is also really, really helps flesh out Hummel as a character. Um, and this is during the discussion between all the principals, between the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and everybody after they got off the phone with Hummel. Um, the FBI director says, what was this book Hummel wrote on Vietnam? Anybody read it? And General Kramer, the, the person who's supposed to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, he says that the U.S. should have, uh, Hummel says, the U.S. should have either won the war or gotten out of Vietnam and stopped wasting American lives. I happen to share General Hummel's view. So we actually had, you know, if they had left that in, we had a, a good little bit of inclusion of history there that 
these men clearly understand, assuming most of them, or at least the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at this particular time, I'm guessing he's a Vietnam veteran. So it makes entire sense that he would agree with that, you know, and it, it's not a, you know, it's, it's not a peacenik kind of view. It's a, it's a simple, I want American soldiers to still be alive if they don't have to die kind of view, you know? Mm. Um, it then goes on to talk about that. Let's see, there was, um, they removed a line that talked about covert illegal operations in Chile and El Salvador. So there was an inclusion there when they when Hummel was talking about the 83 force reconnaissance Marines that have died under his his different commands. Um, that line was kept out, which would have been a great little nod to Iran Contra and into the, the the drug wars, the dirty wars of uh, of the 80s. And at least they would have acknowledged it. They would have acknowledged that that these things, as if we even if we think of them horrible today. They did happen, and this man was a part of that. And presumably, the reference to Chile is Allende? Operation Condor. Condor, yeah, the overthrow of Allende. Yeah, yeah, that's one can only assume. So. Yeah, that's no, no. The, the the timeline I think fits that. That's probably um, probably what they're talking about. The next, whereas in the final version, the simplification is essentially lots of stuff about Vietnam. Yes, a brief mention of Grenada. I think it was. Yeah, uh, and then Desert Storm, and that's it. That's that. That is the streamlined U.S. military history timeline that they want us to buy for this movie. And the and the script here says that they they were they were much more historically literate than uh, than somebody like Michael Bay. Um, so the next next inclusion, uh, Hummel. Um, this is on the second phone call that they make to leaders later on, and them telling them they're having problems with the account transfer and what other bullshit they came up with. And Hummel says, I want to tell you guys about a fella named Dave Ridgway. Dave Ridgway was um, a 22 year old Marine tortured to death by a communist death squad in the El Salvadorian jungle. His mother and young wife were told by the Pentagon that he went AWOL. Let's talk about the respect he got. Hmm. So, we, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take away, you know, it's, it's a communist death squad. So we're still, you know, that the, the Americans are still fighting, you know, on, on the right side there. Mm -hmm. um, but directly drives a direct line between active duty military members and what was happening in Central America ar around that time. And that it was so bad that they had to tell his family that he went AWOL. Now, I wondered, it was like, maybe, is there a chance this guy was real, that this actually happened? So I Googled different variations of the name Ridgeway, and I didn't find a Dave Ridgeway, but I did find a Ronald Ridgeway. Ronald Ridgeway was a guy who um, barely survived an ambush in Vietnam in 1968 or 69, I think, and he was believed dead at that fight. He was actually captured by the VC, and he was held until the end of the war in 73. His mother and his family was told that he was dead. And I mean, the military believed it at that point. They weren't lying, lying to lie. They, they just they didn't know. So when all the prisoners were released 
and they found out and they had names of lists and stuff and there he was and he he made it home um but he was believed to have been dead that whole time and of course his his family believed that he went freaking awol which of course during a war like that would have been a, a a huge black mark on him as a you know as an american just in in general so you think that's where they got that story from I, I think it's I, I think it's pretty close. Um, I think it may also be connected with uh, there was a CIA pilot who went down. It wasn't in El Salvador. I'm pretty sure it was in Nicaragua. Hmm. Um, who was captured and held for quite a while, and there was a fairly fairly big thing about this. This is in '84, '85. Uh, he was I'm fairly certain shipping weapons. Um, to the Contras. Mm. Um, so I think they may have transplanted little bits of both of those stories together mm. and, you know, changed a bit of the name, changed the country, so it's not too obvious what they're talking about. Uh, I'm just saying, because this was the story that, um, for those of, you know, people who've read my book or heard me bang on about the cinema of Iran-Contra, this was part of the story in that Marlon Brando film that never got made because mm. Oliver North intervened and basically killed the movie. Um, that was going to be part of the story about that, this downed pilot. Um, and whether or not he'd been tortured by the Sandinistas, people can um, look that story up themselves and judge for themselves, I guess. But that was obviously part of the narrative that they put out there because it was all about demonizing the Sandinista government. Um, so I think, yeah, it's probably a, a bit of a splice of both of those things, maybe. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like they did take a little a little from here, a little from there, and and put that together. But the, I love that there was actually a name attached to it. I mean, even though the person yeah. is not real, to to actually bring that home that that, you know, this is a real person that actually you know went through something. Um, the the last thing I'll say about Hummel just as a character is that and you you alluded to this a little bit earlier is that he does really seem to be holding off some of his men's own worst instincts mm. almost the entire film you know what i mean and not not quite every i mean maybe the first third when not really a whole lot's happening on the island once everybody is is hostage but he you know towards the end you know his those two asshole captains keep bugging him about are we going to launch the mm. missile are we going to launch the missile um and it, it just um and other other little places and stuff and that they actually did um they did turn that down a little bit in the final product those guys weren't as nasty i don't i didn't make any specific notes about something they had uh, they had added but it it's uh it's something that you could see reading it the length of it hmm. so um the next thing that we need to talk about is we need to talk about napalm Thermite plasma and white phosphorus. So they they the principals meeting after they speak to Hummel, they're discussing about what they can what they can do to bomb the island to ensure that the the gas is uh, that the VX is is completely destroyed. Um, they say the napalm's not strong enough. They propose thermite plasma, which although military does have weapons that have thermite, I don't think there's anything that's actually called thermite plasma. But in the original script, the instead of being napalm and thermite plasma, it was napalm and 
white phosphorus. Now, in real life, napalm is more than enough to destroy VX. It's hot enough, it, do it does the job. So, But in the original script, they said napalm wasn't hot enough, so we have to use white phosphorus. Both napalm and white phosphorus have deep, deep connections to um, American foreign policy, especially, um, say, from, from Kennedy on. Um, the original... Um, Original napalm was used in the Korean War and in World War II. Um, and the formulation that they ended up using, the one that the um, Dow Chemical is very famous for, for making and for the protests that happened there against it, um, they came up with something called napalm B, which was a little, a little more stable. Um, between 63 and 73, the U.S. dropped 388,000 tons of napalm on North Vietnamese targets. Um, you could definitely see it, um, looking between, uh, with, compared with figures from previous wars, there was like 32,000 tons dropped in the Korean war, 16,000 uh, and a half tons of, uh, of it used in the Pacific. But Vietnam really saw that thing come to the forefront of military, um, military strategy. The air war over Vietnam was something else. Really. It was when you look. I mean, not just talking about napalm, more conventional munitions, the whole you know spraying program with all the fucking herbicides and all that horrible stuff that they were just covering vast swathes of the country in, as well you know, as well as dropping a shitload of napalm and just setting fire to large parts of it as well. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's anything else that I know of that. In, you know, in terms of like an aerial bombardment in all these different really horrible ways that really comes close to that. I don't think that, you know, I think it's more than was like dropped as the as the Allied forces were retaking Europe at the end of World yeah. War II, you know? And that's on Vietnam. It's not a big country. Yeah. No. It's, it's, not like, it's not like bombing China. No, what I'm saying. no, 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 no. It, it, yeah, in, in comparison, it's 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 minuscule <clears throat> in size, um, and and uh, set up in a long strip, so it's easy to bomb. You just follow the strip. Yeah, um, yes. No, the the um, the effect that napalm and Agent Orange had on Vietnam has been absolutely horrific. Um, if I remember correctly, the some of the firebombing of Tokyo that took place prior to our use of the atomic bombs involved the original napalm. Um, I don't know if it was used in the firebombing of Dresden, although it might have been. Um, but those are, the, those are the kinds of munitions that would be used in those kind of things, these things that just make incredible balls of fire. And even if the fire doesn't reach you for whatever reason, it still sucks all of the oxygen out of the area around you, which means if, even if you're not burned to death, you still end up suffocating. And even if you're lucky enough that that doesn't happen, you die from smoke inhalation. Yep. There, there, yep, there is, there is no, no, no way out of it. And one of the reasons that they like to use it for those kind of things, they like to use it against hardened targets to try to, that the fire will consume further inside. Um, so, let me find my spot here. Um, another big dis uh, distinguishing characteristic for Napalm B was how easily that it could be made. 
Um, they said a simple bathtub chemistry was used to mix a concoction of gasoline, benzene, and polystyrene. Um, and that was when Dow ended up, you know, they ended up starting and making it. So um, it's for something so simple, it, it it's just so horrifying that they're, you know, it, a little bit of liquid fire, a sort of jellied gasoline, it, it just clings to human skin and melts it right off. Um, witnesses described um, eyelids so burned they could not be shut. Um, the and and with Vietnam because Vietnam was the first major war that was televised, that people really began to see this. They began. There was a, a sixty-seven article in Ramparts magazine that had color photographs of of mutilated Vietnamese kids. But this was you know this was both America and the world's first opportunity to see up close and personal a war and and a war that because america used attrition so much was just that much more horrifying um so when napalm either couldn't be used or wasn't considered effective they moved to what's called white phosphorus and white phosphorus is that is something that i actually carried in the military although i had it in little hand grenades it wasn't it wasn't something on a on a large scale it's a toxic colorless white or yellow waxed solid and it has a garlic-like odor um it doesn't occur naturally though and it's manufactured from phosphate rocks when it ignites and it ignites because it's exposed to oxygen it produces really thick clouds of white smoke and reaches temperatures hot enough to burn through metal it's one of the things we use it for with the grenades i mentioned earlier is i would <clears throat> You could use it to burn through a radio. So if you had to destroy an engine block of yours, if there was a disabled vehicle or something you didn't want the enemy to get, it would go right through. Mm. Um, it is used by militaries in various types of munitions primarily, but not exclusively, for marking or illuminating a target or masking friendly force movement by creating smoke. It burns skin down to the bone. And because of its behavior when exposed to oxygen, bandage wounds can reignite once oxygen reaches them again when receiving first aid. It's incredibly hard to put out. Um, and even if, uh, like we were discussing with napalm, if somebody doesn't actually get burned by the fire itself, inhaling the smoke can bring its own set of injuries. Um, it was used extensively in Vietnam. It was also used... Um, in the Iraq War, um, I'm specifically thinking of the Second Battle of Fallujah, um, and they, they claim that they were using it primarily for screening and marking, but they know that it has a horrifying effect on people, and especially in places where they're contained, where something if, if something is a, a hardened location and they're trying to break in, that it can really, really mess with people and try to get them out. Um, so, it was also used quite a bit in Desert Storm, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was used a lot in Desert Storm. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm there, there's so much to write about it. Please, folks, if you if you have the chance to read a little bit about white phosphorus too, I'm not going to cover all all of the tidbits today. But yeah, Tom, you're you're absolutely right. It's it has been used extensively in a variety of of places. Generally, these days, the military is a little more wary of using them on a larger scale because of the, not because of the effects, the military doesn't give a shit about that, but because of the PR backlash that may, may come from that. Um, and there have been some, some pretty extensive uh, videos and articles and books and things made about 
white phosphorus like its use in the second battle of Fallujah and what it, what it did to people. So before we start talking about VX a little bit, it's really important that everybody grab onto this idea that the final cut of the film had them using this weird thing called thermite plasma when the original thing, the original uh, um, weapon, you know, so a secondary weapon or, you know, one that was going to work more than the napalm, even though poison gets entirely burned up by napalm. Something that had real historical significance could have been in this movie, could have pointed out a, a, a critical spot in American foreign policy in terms of, of just not caring, not caring about what happens to people, just that the, the, the tactics are, are entirely justified because that's what we need to, to kill the enemy. Um, and well, Andy, I think you've got to consider the timing of this movie. So it was in development, presumably that original script I'm guessing was 95, 96. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's got a date on it, but uh, that it will have been around then. There was considerably less awareness of white phosphorus then than there is now. True. Because true. quite a lot more attention got drawn onto it because of its use in Iraq. People were like, what, we're still using this shit? Um, people have kind of forgotten about it. Those who did know about it have kind of forgotten. And then, you know, the, the Iraq wars, I think, very much brought it back into some people's attention anyway. So this movie came at a time when it, you know, really just wasn't, I don't think, much up for discussion. And you've got to think, given what they do with the Hummel character, mm -hmm. given the backstory they developed for him in the, in the script you're talking about, that's all a pretty savage picture of the history of US militarism that does somewhat disappointingly get watered down into a, a rather hazy kind of Vietnam syndrome yeah. slash, you know, Vietnam vet syndrome. Um, there's some bits still in there, certainly. I'm certainly not, you know, writing this movie off, but it has clearly been diluted. And I think the removal and replacement of white phosphorus. Yeah, that is one of those things. The DOD is very, very touchy over its use of these sorts of weapons because you're not really supposed to use them um, for any purpose. You can say, oh, we were just using it for illumination. It's like, yeah, but it's all giving off a toxic gas. I mean, I'm sure you could use something else for illumination, yeah. couldn't you? Um, a torch, perhaps? Um, I know that's not practical in a lot of circumstances, but you know what I mean? There are always other options than something like white phosphorus. Uh, so even though the DOD had nothing to do with this movie, I have a feeling this was partly the kind of Bruckheimer Bay influence. I don't know who exactly, you know, would have influenced this, this movie to have some of this more controversial stuff taken out. Um, and yeah, I don't, you know, thermite plasma, what does that even mean? People love sticking the word plasma on the end of something to make it sound futuristic but it's how would you even make a thermite plasma i i don't know I, that's not really how thermite works no no <laughs> not not in the least so, um yeah that that was clearly uh we can't have white phosphorus you know what the hell are we gonna jam in here exactly. oh, let's just take let's just take two words thermite and plasma yeah that'll do um, yeah all it has to do is blow up anyway no one cares but we'll call them romulan torpedoes 
would have been cool. <laughs> it would have been much cooler. Yeah, they could have done. They could have done better with that in the in the imagination of coming up with weird military names. No, I think what you mentioned about the script is is really important in that because it was used extensively, not just in Vietnam but in the Gulf War, that this script would have been written in some of the reminder of that. Certainly, it wasn't nearly as public. But that may have given additional emphasis for the original writing. And then, of course, it was watered down and washed out um, just to make something else. But it, there's so much history here that, you know, that if you were I, I know as I when I was a kid, I thought that movies had to be at least partially historical, that if we're, we're going to use a history, it has to at least be provable or documented. And that's not fucking true at all. Um What was the other thing? Yeah, never mind. All right, so the the other the other set of misinformation uh, in this movie that I think is really important for people to understand is about VX. So, VX gas, um, it's a really really horrifying thing. It, it, it I mean, similar similar to white phosphorus, although it works quite differently. Um, the VX molecule interferes with the way that glands and muscles function by blocking an enzyme that allows them to relax. That causes muscles to clench uncontrollably and eventually prevents a victim from being able to breathe. The lethal dose is um, about 10 milligrams if it's uh, exposed to your skin versus 25 to 30 milligrams uh, if inhaled. Um, early symptoms, pinprick pupils, a runny nose, wheezing, and of course muscle twitching. Um, death can occur occur anywhere from within a few minutes to hours, depending on the dose and the method of contact. Now, they talk a little bit in the movie about something called atropine. Atropine is a, is a real medicine, and it is a medicine that doctors and, and uh, military medics use to deal with this kind of poison stuff. Um, that the, when the body is working nor normally, there's a neurotransmitter called um, acetylcholine that moves between nerves to carry signals. Um, and once it does its job, there's an enzyme that shows up to break it down. The nerve agents, like VX, destroy that enzyme. It blocks up and continues to make the nerves connect and connect and connect over again. Atropine blocks the receptor for acetylcholine. So if there's a huge buildup between the nerves, the connections can't happen. Um, but it will, it can, if given the right amount of time before, or excuse me, after exposure, people can survive. It's not, it's not unlivable, um, but it really depends on how long it's been since they've been exposed up until they actually... How much they were exposed to. Right, so right. Yeah. Um, the injectors that they use, you notice at the end of the movie with Nicolas Cage showing the giant needle shooting out of that thing. That's not how those are supposed to work. The, the injector actually gets put up where it's supposed to get injected, usually like on the thigh, um, and then the needle springs out of it. It's supposed to be right up next to it. So the fact that he did that and showed the, you know everybody watching what the needle is means that it wouldn't work for him. He wouldn't be able to actually get it injected. Also, the whole heart thing, um, he missed his heart. It was closer to stomach area. Where where he actually shoved that into himself, um, yeah, I don't, he might have nicked, nicked a bit of liver on the way in. Possibly, think, yeah. possibly, all, all kinds of fun stuff down there. 
Um, I think I, I took that for what it was, which is an obvious homage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was. Um, but, but I mean, of course, we, we could not have appreciated this giant sharp needle without seeing the giant sharp needle. So I, I, in terms of, of, of movie magic, I can understand that and kind of kind of let that one go. But it's it just funny in the way that they um, they dealt with it. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Korgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style... You can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. No, no, sure, sure. You would never use it. <laughs> And you've got to think, this is something that's designed to be used in like an extreme circumstance, mm-hmm. you know, battlefield circumstance, someone's just been exposed to something. You, you wouldn't design it to be injected into the heart with like a four inch needle. No, no that's no, no, no. absurd. You just I mean, and even if that was the only way to do it, you just say, okay, we can't really do this. We can't have people, you know, wandering around stabbing people in the heart because they think they've been exposed to something, you know, that's that's just not realistic but you know lots of things in this movie aren't realistic so we can forget that one no i i when i was in the service i carried a um i carried a a, a pack of a, a chemical weapons medicine pack and it had a injector that had atropine and then it had a second injector that has uh pam2 chloride in it which um it does a similar effect as the atropine but in a slightly different way um but essentially enough to to save your life if you happen to be exposed at that at that particular point we did have every every so often one of them you know somebody would have them in a a pocket or something and the injector would go off by accident and poke them and thankfully once the injector goes off like i said it's it's not helpful anymore so people aren't actually accidentally poking themselves with atropine but i shouldn't laugh but that (laughs) no it is it's a freaking hilarious um the other things to mention about VX, um, just real quick, is that the the 
the movie has them inside of glass beads um inside inside the rockets which is not at all what they would be set up on in real life again like with the whole needle thing you know in terms of the movie the movie magic element it did add some some additional drama in terms of how careful they had to be moving it um but it 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 had no no basis in in real life in that way and vx gas in its liquid form is normally an amber color green is something they end up using for danger in movies i guess i didn't i hadn't heard that before i read it about this one but um so but but in terms of the the realism in that that the um that didn't show goes that. back to that way, that old way of thinking of um, our eyes are able to see more colors of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, more shades of green than any other color. Oh, partly okay. about spotting predators hiding in the grasses, you know, hiding in the leaves or what have you. Supposedly, I don't know whether it's exactly true, but that it is one of those things that people say. Yeah, so I'm guessing that whole green danger thing probably comes from there. That makes sense. I think that makes sense. Um, I mean, I did read an interview actually with the um, screenwriter who said, yeah, they totally invented this whole, you know, pearl glass bead thing because VX originally is actually, you're actually having two separate chambers. It's two different compounds that when mixed together produce the gas. So that's actually kind of boring. And he said, you know, not very, it's not like, like, what do you do with that visually on yeah, screen? Yeah, yeah. And that's why they came up with this rather absurd, you know, chain of glass beads. You know, but even that is like, you wouldn't put something like that in a rocket because when it fires, there's half a chance one of those beads is going to break, right? Absolutely. And those, um, rock, those rockets fly, fly impossibly fast. So yeah. the amount of inertia that would be put onto its components would be, would be insane. And they're um, rattling around inside it and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it doesn't. It, it does. No, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, um, but this is why it kind of gets interesting because, um, as I was telling you, this came up in the whole Iraq weapons of mass destruction fiasco. Right, right. I forgot about that. MI6 effectively published a report saying that Saddam had the X gas as part of his, you know, kind of weapons poisonous weapons program. Um, and that, that they were being stored in these, you know, sort of chains of glass beads. And this somehow got fed into the narrative and people took it seriously. And it, I mean, you know, even in the, in the context of this rather ridiculous movie that we're talking about, it's absurd. You can't kind of get away from the fact that it's absurd, even in a schlockbuster Michael Bay movie. Yeah. So how on earth people in the intelligence agencies and, you know, they do have scientists who work for them in their analysis of information on chemical weapons programs. I don't know how on earth this got through the filter, but it did um, and ended up in the public domain. Years later, the Iraq inquiry, they basically concluded that because this had come from some informant in Iraq who supposedly had firsthand knowledge of Saddam's chemical weapons programs, um, obviously some bottom-feeding scumbag looking for money. Yeah. Um, he told this to MI6, and they, you know, they like kind of realized that the inquiry years later, he probably just made it up after watching The Rock. Um, and hence, we invaded Iraq. You know, it's... 
it's one of those laugh or cry moments. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Um, um, so I'm going to laugh because this, I mean, as, as corrupt as all of that was, it also points to just how incompetent MI6 really are when it comes down to it. Because, you know, I know they don't have to worry about losing their jobs and being prosecuted because they work for MI6 and that just never happens. But even so, they must have been embarrassed by this. So the fact that, that you know, they all signed off on this complete nonsense and at no point did anyone stop and say, hang on, this sounds rather like that Michael Bay movie from less than five years ago now. Yeah, it wasn't an um, old movie at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't, you know, it's a wonderful life. Um, so, but no one did that. None of the technical people, the scientists, the agents, the analysts, any of them um, just points to how kind of dumb a lot of these people in these so-called intelligence agencies really are. Uh, yeah. Tragically for the Iraq people, obviously, and everyone else involved in that horrible fiasco. You know, you mentioned the, the binary components, and I just realized, you remember Die Hard with a Vengeance? That, that's different, that's, it. that's an explosive. Yeah, yeah, but no, in terms of the visual, in terms of that, that we could, that they actually were able to make props and set pieces that showed well, us. That's sort, of, that's sort of what I mean, you know, yeah. liquid mixing together and the thing going beep, 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 and you know <laughs> that the bomb's about to go off. That's a bit different than, you know, glass breaks. Oh, totally. Fizzes together for a moment, smoke emerges. It, it's, yeah, much better to have bright green glass beads that you put inside a rocket. <laughs> Definitely, definitely, and and when I hear st when I hear stories like you mentioned about the MI six guys, it makes me feel a little bit better that most of my life I've gotten my information about the military from movies. That is like you know is that again I was a kid, you know I was I was you know I don't know twelve or thirteen when this movie came out. Um, yeah, I was a couple of years, two three years older than that. However much older yeah. I am than you, yeah. Um. So I wanted to move on to talk about secrets and how the movie approaches the entire subject of secrets and um, that, you know, you have you have the movie starting with Hummel talking about the casualties, guys abandoned on the on the field of battle. Mm -hmm. um, you have the the White House meeting secrets that Hummel shares with them about the the Red Sea Trading Company and other things that that are just coming out because we one thing that movies don't really portray very well is in terms of who's read into what secrets and that you know who is this a secret to that guy you know may not have been cleared but this other guy might have been cleared um but there's and i i feel like that theme continues through the film of course you know mason and his whole character and arc is about the microfilm mm -hmm. um that he ended up hiding from the FBI, um, I saw people mentioning that if he was a spy, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he'd be stealing microfilm. But who who knows? It, it it was you know it's just it's just a part of the plot. They didn't even say that he was a spy. They said he was XSAS. True, you're right. They did. They never did say that he. They kind of inferred it a little bit, but not kind so of, much. Yeah. And then of course that was the uh, hearing he was XSAS was the last of his resume that we knew about other than being in prison for 30 years so um then you have you know hummel makes them says you have to keep this a secret that we have alcatraz you go to the public i'll launch the gas um and then of course the seal rescue mission going to a you know to a place that is supposed to be kept a secret we're adding even 
more uh, censorship to it. Um, but there's there's that continual uh, part along the along the film about that the you know we've kept these secrets. We thought they were the secrets that that were the the the, the necessary sacrifices, so to speak. And it's clear from looking at Hummel's point of view that yeah, you can you can understand. It's like you said earlier about Hummel, you know, not being a, as much of a traditional villain. Is that you you know there there's there's a lot of sympathetic notes to the things that he shares, even if they're not historically accurate. You know, for for being in his world. Um, at one point, one of the White House guys mentioned something about that. I know how the and you know how the president feels about terrorism. So what we'd like to do is. And Hummel's like, this isn't about terrorism. It's about justice. It's about reminding you people who found it polit politically convenient to forget. Um, and again, you have, you know, Hummel's, Hummel's entire blinders on that he is bringing his, you know, his, um, his ideas of justice, you know, to the people that he wants, to, wants it to be about. Which begs the question, why didn't he and his Marines not go kidnap the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or those other assholes that were early in the movie, as opposed to 81 innocent people who somehow convinced the park ranger at Alcatraz to let him lock them behind their those bars. Um, I want to visit Alcatraz someday. I mean, I don't want to ever fucking do that. I don't know who, I mean, and, and maybe just for the movie, you know, it's like, hey, uh, yeah, pretty tight in there. You wouldn't want to have gotten stuck at Alcatraz, would you? Um, but yeah, it, but let's uh, face it. There is also the massive unanswered question of why this island prison that has been out of commission since the 1960s still has a massive working industrial scale furnace in the basement. It's, that's a very good question. Oh, because moving has to happen. Yep. Because otherwise it's far too easy for them to get into the island, basically. Yep. Um, so okay fine whatever they do these sorts of things in movies and i sit there wondering about them and then kind of give up but i mean one of the reasons why they can't portray something like why you know them kidnapping the chairman of the joint chiefs that would be ace um, <laughs> is is for the obvious reason they they're not modeling behave well they're sort of modeling behavior here in, in a way and they don't want to model certain behaviors sure they just don't sure. want something like that if you if you put that genuinely in in a movie like this firstly there's no way michael bay and jerry Bruckheimer make it there's no way sean connery signed on to be a, a lead sure. actor on it yeah, nicholas yeah. cage would probably do it because nicholas cage will do anything um you know you have all of these problems you won't get a big studio financing it you might be able to get it made on a smaller budget, but then it won't look that good. It won't have that air of authenticity. And so yeah. kind of what's the point? No way that um, they would actually get Alcatraz as a filming location. Yeah, so on and so forth. So I think that's the main reason why. But of course, it makes far more sense. Visit it back on the people who are actually responsible. And if you're going to take a sort of extreme action, like, I mean, it's not terrorism. It's using a terrorist tactic, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, if you're going to do that sort of thing, yeah, direct it at the people who are actually at the center of, of the power structure that has done this to you and to people that you know. Um, kidnapping, I mean, I do find visiting a prison as a tourist thing to do to be strange. Um, I kind of get the voyeuristic angle, but I still 
it leaves a little bit of a you know uncomfortable feeling in me. I don't think those people deserve to be kidnapped and held for ransom and you know used as human shields. Um, as strange as I find that, I just I think that's a, a bone too far, maybe. So yeah, like you say, kidnap the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Someday we'll see that in something. Remind me when we're offline. I have a story idea I want to run by you that doesn't exactly <laughs> follow that idea, but it's close. You'll you'll like it. You'll like it. Okay. Okay. Um. There's two deaths that they included in the final product of the movie that I did not notice in the original script, and those deaths were of the marine who died uh, from VX and the weapons depot as they were taking it, and the seal that was guarding um, Mason in good speed under the shower room and then went upstairs as he heard his comrades dying and died and fought alongside them. Hmm. Um, They weren't included in the original script, so it was originally kind of a question mark as to why they added those in. And so I was like, are these these our necessary sacrifices in terms of, of... mission success or mission failure, you know, that we, that there, there has to be somebody on that side who, who, um, ends up dead and, and that the, you know, the Marines, they managed to protect the rest of them in terms of accomplishing their mission. Um, and of course it, that seemed much more like an ordinary military mission, not terrorists doing terrorist tactic type things when we, when we originally saw that, hmm. um, the and I and I also noticed that it seems like the film was calling out the failure of the of uh, the usual methods or the first choices that would have been you know would have immediately uh, dealt with something. You have Hummel's entire point about his lost Marines and taking hostages on Alcatraz. You have the the seals being ambushed almost immediately after mm-hmm. they got to Alcatraz leaving the, the the only remaining chance to be a, a somewhat of a James Bond ripoff and a uh, a featherweight biochemist, which actually I th- thought was a really neat and interesting pairing that they did with that. Um, and then you yeah, also yeah, have... The, oh, go the ahead. The interchanges sorry. between those two work well. They That's do. One of the things that I find a little bit frustrating about this is that you can tell it's been Michael Bayified. It um, has. It has. Because the script have some good characters mm-hmm. that are quite quite well constructed and they have some nice moments and some good dialogue and you know you get to know them in the first third of the movie it kind of mm-hmm. sets them all up quite well but one of the problems it then faces is that every time you have another nice character moment something blows up or falls over or someone gets shot and they have to move into another action sequence yeah. nothing's given none of those characters are really given any time to breathe or given an awful lot to do that isn't just in service of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so where it does go into that, it's quite nice. I would have loved a movie that had twice as much of that and half as much action. I think it actually would have made for a better film. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that, and I, I think that, that this movie succeeded in a way that other Michael Bay films would not have because you did have, some decent character development. You did have some of these nice scenes and yes, he came in and he just actioned, actionified it, whatever, you know, however he, he does his thing. But the, the, um, 
if they had paced it better, I would have enjoyed it more. You know, the, the, some of the, the scenes, the fight scenes could have been very similar, but they just needed to kind of rearrange them a little bit. But, um, but you had, you know, usually in Michael Bay films, you don't have good dialogue and action scenes. You don't have little funny jokes and kinds of things. It's usually much more streamlined and just the story is kind of left behind in, in lieu of the, the big explosions. Um, and when he does attempt a story, you end up with Pearl Harbor. Yes, right. Oh, Lord. A, a, an obvious uh, repurposing of a fairly horrible event so that he could try to make his version of Titanic. I think that's what he was going for, a kind of romance mm. disaster story, but set in mm. World War II. Um, widely considered to be one of the worst films ever made. I oh, think. it's awful. It's um, awful. And I remember uh, that, that uh, online Navy conference where they were talking about all of these sorts of things and the entertainment liaison offices and everything. Uh, one of the funniest things that came out of that online conference watching it um, was that um, the guy at the Marine Corps office who was there when Michael Bay and Jerry Grapheimer came in with Pearl Harbor said, you know, there's never been a film about the Doolittle Raid. <laughs> <laughs> there are films specifically about the Doolittle Raid. <laughs> oh man! I think I think he's ruined the world enough. I think we just needed like lock him in a room with a giant stack of history books and like don't come out until you've read them all and can recite them or something. Yeah, um, I mean that he wouldn't read them. Let's make it. no. He would. He would. Can he read? I don't know. <laughs> if it's not on cue cards, maybe not. I, I don't know. It, 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 it's really very much a question mark. Um, I mean, getting back to Sean Connery's character, because I do think he probably has the best character in the movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, he certainly has the most fun character to play in the movie, I think. Um, what I found fascinating about him purely from like a you know nerdy, I'm into films kind of perspective, is that he's essentially playing the same character that Nicolas Cage plays in Con Air, right? Very he's got similar, long yes. He's kind of semi-invincible, mm -hmm. wrongly convicted, mm -hmm. and he just wants to get home to see his daughter. Now, unfortunately, at no point does he get an opportunity to say, put the bunny back in the box. But <laughs> it's essentially the same character. I'm not wrong, am I? No, you're right. It, 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 they're very much, very much the same, same person, yeah. So there's that. There's the fact that he's clearly an aging James Bond, and part of the point of getting Sean Connery is to make out that like this is what James Bond has been doing for the last 30 years, is he's mm. been imprisoned because of some hidden microfish that explains everything from UFOs to JFK to whatever. Um, also, that this, this itself is kind of a sequel to Entrapment, which does the exact same thing with Sean Connery. Where he plays an essentially aging James Bond. You're right. I had forgot about Entrapment. Um, that's partly because the only good thing about Entrapment is Catherine Zeta-Jones in yoga pants. That, that is a really good part of Entrapment, I must say. It, yeah. Yeah, it's the only reason to watch it, and teenage boys everywhere will remember watching that film for that reason. It's otherwise kind of a miserable film. It's just interesting that, you know, you have it, it is ridiculous. in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just... he's, he's still having to recycle the James Bond thing. This is what Daniel Craig is going to have to do in the future. This is what <laughs> Pierce Brosnan is doing. Pierce Brosnan spent the last 20 years plucking, fucking playing aging spies. 
Because it's like no one will cast him to do anything else. Nope. Um, seriously, being James Bond ruins your career. I mean, it makes your career, but it also ruins it. Uh, I, I I hadn't noticed that about, about Pierce Brosnan, but you're absolutely right now that I think about it. <laughs> there was another interesting... He, he plays a similar sort of character in this movie called uh, The Misfits that came out earlier this year. I haven't seen it, but... Um, mm. If anyone's interested, there was a recent Al Jazeera extended investigative report into the making of that film and how it was essentially taken over by a rich Emirati who rewrote the movie to be a kind of demonization of Qatar, because this was at the point that UAE and Qatar were in some big mm -hmm. geopolitical squabble. Then when that got resolved and they lifted the blockade on Qatar, the film got re-edited to try and take out the Qatar bits, <laughs> but they kind of made a mess of it. So there are still places where you see Qatari logos and locations that, you know, they've taken out in some scenes, but forgotten to do in others. And it's this really fascinating story of like a propaganda project gone horribly wrong. Um, yeah, some a listener recently sent me this Al Jazeera report, and it's absolutely fascinating to watch. But yeah, once again, it's Pierce Brosnan playing an aging James Bond because, like I say, no one wants him to do anything else. Well, as far as for for Connery's portion of it, I would say that the the development of his character in this one would probably make it one of the best non James Bond roles that he had after after that time i mean there's lots of other great movies that he made after that time but the in terms of actually grabbing a hold of a, a james bond-esque character and hmm. where would he be at this moment what would that you know kind of what what that would really look like what the, are the great sean connery movies what i'm just wondering he did hunt for red october he's very good in that yeah um, his cameo in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, that was awesome. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, no, that was a that was that was a good one. I'm thinking I can't think of I'm blanking on my my Sean Connery movies right now, but I'll I Yeah, yeah, we'll have to go on Wikipedia and actually look them up because neither of us are remembering what the hell else is true. <laughs> I can remember a couple of other films that he's done that were really good, but they're not coming to me. Why aren't the titles coming to me? Um But yeah, I did find, I, I certainly found the whole like conflict between his character and the FBI director uh, very, firstly, very entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, but also, like, do any of the government officials come up looking well in this? Because almost everyone in this movie, aside from being a white guy over 40, pretty much everyone works for the government. Mm -hmm. There are very few characters who aren't in some way either current or former government employees. So, okay, the heroes are eventual heroes because they're the only two people left standing. Right. Um, uh, okay, fine, they're one of them's like ex-SES and whatever the hell Sean Connery's character is actually supposed to be. And his surname is Mason, so, you know, they're playing on something there, clearly. Um but like the government doesn't exactly come across well. All those guys back in the command center who don't really know what's going on and don't make any sensible decisions as a result, they're not exactly heroes of this, are they? So, I mean, unlike most of these sorts of films where you'd have a bunch of civilians who are essentially useless, you have 
a clearly defined villain and your heroes are either current or former government employees. In this one, everyone's a government employee or ex. So therefore, the good guys are, the bad guys are, and the incompetent ones in the middle are as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a much more, I guess, realistic, perhaps, um, depiction of things. It's not realistic, this film, but I just found that dynamic very, very curious. That like The FBI director is a total idiot. He's useless in this movie. Um, he spends most of it swanning around in a tuxedo, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. They're clearly mocking him. Um, and they outwit him in the end. I like the, you know, the very end of the movie where Nicolas Cage and his new bride go and actually find the microfilm with all of these you know, documents on that Sean Connery supposedly hid away 30 years earlier. Is that what we're led to believe? Yeah. Is that yeah. what happened there? Um, why he thought hiding them inside the leg of a it's like a, a bench in a church or a little chapel or something isn't it yeah yeah that's not the most like permanent place no no but it is a pretty inventive place to hide something although it, oh, course... it, oh it's very spy yeah you yeah, know yeah. it's very cool i just mean from a practical point of view it doesn't make much sense but then you don't get that nice scene when he's running out of the chapel and they have to jump in the car and you know all of that so I can see, you know, again, it's one of those things where they just chose something kind of ludicrously unrealistic because it works in terms of the magic of the cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, just one final thing on the VX gas before we go back to your, um, I don't know what we're calling it, your research and analysis of all this. Um, in an interview with a screenwriter where he was talking about that whole thing around Iraq and MI6, he was actually saying, you know, this was terrible mm-hmm. and ridiculous. Um, and I think he even expressed, you know, like a small amount of regret that this silly thing that they came up with just for the sake of, you know, we need movie to happen. So PX gas has to work in this way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, saying how terrible it was that, that we invaded Iraq. And so, again, I think the people, like the original people and the original thrust of this movie was coming from a pretty good place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that guy's a decent guy. I haven't seen that that recent, relatively recent CIA one he did with, I think, Ryan Reynolds. But I think I'm going to have to now. Because I, I just mean, having read a few interviews with him today, as I was trying to you know, nail down a bit more about this film, I'm just very impressed by him. So I'm you know, very curious to see what else, what his other films look like. I've I've thought about possibly inter- seeing if I could get him on an interview and talk about this script in a little more detail and like understanding what the you know what was going on with the studio and, and in terms of themes and stuff. Um, I will say uh, just just real quick while I'm thinking about it, you mentioned about the the buffoonishness of the FBI director in the original script. One of the final uh, spots of the movie is that the president is on the phone with Goodspeed congratulating him for for saving the day and then he's and then the director gets on the phone and the president promptly fires him (laughs) and and i'm like that's pretty cool oh i loved it i thought i thought it was amazing but it was like you know immediately you're like that's the thing they wanted to get rid of the most you know all the other changes and different things but but that Mm -hmm. someone could have been seen as culpable in any of this yeah, no, they're not keeping that shit. But it, it did, it really, it, it, um, 
and especially in terms of justice for Mason, that he was, you know, thrown behind bars for 30 years, you know, locked in a hole and they threw away the key. Um, I think that's actually what the CIA director uh, said about that. Um, and also the final drive off, they originally, there was, it was going to have two aspects. One was going to be the one that we see in the final product with Nick Cage and his fiance going to the church. But just before that, they had a drive off that included Mason and his daughter that they were like hmm. driving up the California coast together, going somewhere. And then that was, and I don't, I don't even know there's any dialogue in it. I don't, I, not that I recall, um, but they're just, just together and they're, they're going off to, to do something. Just um, to establish a little happy ever after for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, his, he, he definitely, um, you know, he's, he's the, he's kind of, it, it's weird not thinking of Ed Harris as the grandpa in a movie that, that, the, <laughs> you know, that, you know, and, and, and in terms of, in terms of the, the, the wisdom, you know, that a character might provide, no, um, I know what you're saying. but you know, they, they get to that, they get to that part where they're, they're talking after Mason first got captured by them. And, um, you know, is that who else would be willing to tell a grizzled Marine general, you know, a special forces Marine general, if we want to want to see it that way, that he's a fucking idiot. And he does, you know, he's like, you know, that, um, um, you know, I don't, I don't quite see how cherishing, how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million. And here's the best part. And this is not combat. It's an act of lunacy. General, sir, personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. I loved it. I loved it as mm. a kid. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's like, and and that was the thing is that Mason knows that he might die here. He seems perfectly fine with that. If it is better than having to go back to prison again, but mm. he has enough credibility established with us that we're like, yes, tell this motherfucker how stupid he is that he wants to come and, 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 prove something to America about already deceased service members and thinking that killing innocent Americans somehow makes that better. I mean, it, other than mm. putting up a flag and saying, this is why I did this, you know, th th I, I, I loved it, but it was, it was, you could see that the, you know, kind of uh, a little bit of a generational thing there. The old guys need to go off and talk. You kids stay out here and shoot at each other if you have to. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, there was a touch of that. So. But, but no, in, in terms of, because I, I in, in thinking about it, um, and it had, heading, heading towards us, us closing up here a little bit, I, I saw the hero track in this movie as being threefold, that you had each of the male leads, each had the most, had, had a few tenable parts of, of being the hero. You have Hummel with someone who clearly he's, He's a leader. He's he's loyal. He's devoted to his to his cause. You have Mason, this old man that has just a shit ton of grit. Um, like, I love how you mentioned the Con Air thing. Now I'm never going to be able to not think about it like that. <laughs> um, that uh, clearly, but clearly he has experience in in dealing with this stuff, and he has a clear head. He's not carrying the baggage that these other people are. I mean, it, it's not that he doesn't care that I think that all the if the people in San Francisco really did die. But he knows that he's not in control of it. He knows that if mm. it happens or doesn't happen, it's not on him. Mm. Um, and then you have Goodspeed, who is certainly the you know in terms of raw intelligence, but he there, there's definitely a bit of an innocence track with him. Mm. Um, 
and there's also that something to prove. And so you you put all those kind of together, and especially when Mason and Goodspeed, you know, become the 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 uh, the better parts of a of a non elderly uh, um, British spy um, yeah. that they that they do really well together. That they they understand each other. That and that, you know, Mason he has to continually goat Goodspeed to let him understand you're going to have to get dirty here. You're not getting out of this unless you're willing to get dirty in the way that I am. And he does, and then he lives. I mean, that's how movie bullshit works anyways. Yeah, yeah, the nerd comes in and has to be taught about the real world. He does, sure. yeah, has to be re-educated. It's like every time they reboot Jack Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But also, I think, with good speed, there are a number of times, and okay, this is every movie you've ever seen, where someone tells him, you know, gives him an order, and tells him that's an order, and then he defies it. Partly, and it's usually uh, because of Mason. Mm -hmm. It's usually because he trusts that Mason actually is a virtuous man and knows what he's doing. And therefore, if he's up to something, if he's got a plan here, then whatever these idiots back in the command bunker are saying is kind of irrelevant because they're not here and they don't know what's going on. Um, so it's not just that he kind of has that respect for Mason. It's also he has the intelligence, despite supposedly being this, you know, nerd who works in an office. Um, even though the opening scene of the film doesn't really set the opening sequence with him, doesn't set it up properly because it shows him nearly dying yeah. while they, you know, doing bomb disposal. Um, they, if they were going to have that, you know, nerd to hardened real world operative trajectory, they kind of needed to set it up a bit better. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> You know what I'm saying? Their relationship works quite well because they do develop a degree of mutual respect and they recognize that the other has skills that they don't. Yeah. Um, and that's why their partnership ultimately survives and, and succeeds. And that's, again, none of this is like groundbreaking stuff, but it's a lot better than just having, you know, like two of essentially the same character and both of them just run around shooting people which yes. is what quite a lot of Michael Bay films have. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched his Benghazi movie. No. But, like, the I, characters I, in that are completely indistinguishable from one another. This is supposed to be an homage to, the, you know, the four guys that died and the others who fought in the battle and all of this kind of stuff. But you never really learn anything about these guys. They, they don't just flesh fight, them right? out in any way. They don't give them personality. You don't give a fuck when they die because you don't know them. So as, as far as a you know, tribute to them, it's a total fucking failure. Yeah. Whereas in this movie, like I say, you just... <coughs> Excuse me. In this movie, it's just a light years better than almost anything other that, that Michael Bay has ever done. Um, yeah, it's essentially, it's the only good Michael Bay film, in my opinion, unless you can point out another one that I'm missing. Um, this is uh -oh. the only one that I like genuinely enjoy as a film, and it doesn't make me go away feeling that this is like some advert for a fascist empire no i i agree with you i don't i i it's definitely the best one that he's ever made and i think because it was um you know like i mentioned earlier you know i think that his his ignorance helped play into the the um authenticity a little bit because it was you know he was <laughs> he's all worried about the action he's all worried about what happens with this and happens with that not so no, much sure sure he, the, he's just hearing rockets firing off alcatraz that's it yeah. that's 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 exactly where it is um 
Should we get into the, the only place that this appears in any of the Pentagon documents? Because it is kind of funny in its way. Sure, yeah. Sure, sure. Go uh, go for it. Okay, this film, they never approached the DOD for any help. Um, they weren't rejected. They just never asked them, which is kind of unusual given who made it. Um, there is an entry in the database, though. For some reason, Phil Strub felt the need, possibly because like me and you, he was actually quite charmed by the movie, he felt the need to include it. And the entry says, Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay probably knew they could not obtain assistance for a script which shows a retired Marine general threatening to destroy San Francisco with a rocket launched from Alcatraz. Full of holes. Which, to be fair, it is. As with Twilight Flash Gleaming, absurd to think a general would put himself in a position with no way out. Absurd, but sometimes exciting. That's his summary of the movie. Wow. Is it that absurd to think a general would put himself in that position? Or is Strub just not understanding this character? He's just not getting it. it, it just... The guy isn't looking for a way out. No. He openly admits that in the script. I'm not fleeing the country. No. Yeah. But if, if he, you know, that was his way out, never mind. Strub, I don't think, got this movie properly, but he did understand, you know, it is absurd, but sometimes exciting. Um, he got that far. <laughs> no, it's it's something that, that 80s and 90s movies did a lot more that we really just don't see these days is a rogue commander, a rogue general, a rogue somebody. And they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're rogue in the, you know, only the slightest sense, not the kind of rogue like you and I were joking about earlier about this being a movie where they try to VX gas poison the Joint Chiefs of Staff or something, you know, yeah, yeah. that we're actually going after the people. Um, what did I just say? I lost my old train of thought. Uh, just how, how unusual the kind of genuine rogue commander. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and also is that, you know, in terms of, because I mean, like, like you, I've seen so many of those kind of movies, and this is this is the only one that really gives you a taste of what's going on with that man what he's actually you know on on internally i'm thinking of course of like the that general in a he was always in a suit but he was in uh, the first lethal weapon the one that uh, the guy that that gary Busey worked for mm. um and of course they're they're using their their his former former generalship to uh to get dope you know, which is what you know. We're after, now we're now we're after money. It doesn't matter, despite the fact that the CIA and the military have been involved in the drug trade for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but but you don't you don't see them really. You know, mm -hmm. we we got to understand. I mean, hearing him talk about being before a Senate Armed Services Committee, and that this is a grave injustice. I mean, it really took it to a different place. Um, they never. I, I just realized that when you, uh, we had talked about that earlier, that it doesn't mention if he ever went to the media, which I think would have been a, a bridge too far, in terms of um, um, in terms of support, especially like DoD support, something that they would have mm -hmm. really, really had an issue with had had that uh, it, had it been part of that. Um, well, again, this is part of the dilution of the movie is that. It does well with Hummel. It could have done better. Mm -hmm. They could have built him up a bit more. They could have established, you know, maybe throw in a couple of flashbacks or things. I'm not talking about, you know, stuff in combat. I mean, mm -hmm. more like 
you know, what what led him to this point? What else had he, had he tried? Because yeah. clearly he didn't go from leaving the military to taking over Alcatraz Island. No, 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 no. And, then... um, and the movie establishes he didn't do that. But it's like, okay, but what did he do? We needed to see a little bit more of that to understand, you know, he, he not that he got desperate. He never really comes across as desperate. No. Um, a little, you know, insane, perhaps, but not in a sort of wild, out of control sort of a way. Um, it's more like he had no other choice. He couldn't see another way forward. So it would have been nice to see a little bit more of, you know, his struggle to do something more peaceful, you sure. know, the proper route kind of thing before he got here. But again, it's a two hour, it's an over two hour movie as it is. Yeah. So if they ever want to make The Rock the TV show, that's what they should do with it. I, I want to see a whole backstory to that character. That could be interesting. That could be, I, I could, I, I would, I would dig something like that. That could be pretty good. And let's face it, they're rebooting and remaking absolutely everything else. Oh, so soon, sooner or later, they'll get to The Rock. It's only a matter of time. In fact, Netflix has probably already started doing it. <laughs> or at least have bought the rights. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Tom, I think that's a, a good place for us to, uh, to wrap it up for today. Um, uh, just a couple of things from the credits. Oh, sure, shoot. That's as good a place to wrap up an episode on a film as any, I reckon. Um, the first, there is someone credited in <laughs> at the end of this film, and their character is called Marine That Dies. Marine That Dies. There's only one of them. All the other, I mean, lots of Marines die in this film. <laughs> but there's only one poor sod who they didn't bother giving a name to. <laughs> so I felt that was a little... Must have been a little bit of disappointing for right? <laughs> oh, oh crap! I I totally forgot about that too. Um, d- just back on the VX for just a second. There is no v- VX gas has no corrosive properties. The skin melting that we see did does not happen. I'm guessing that they added it because it would have added a you know a visual dimension a visual to what element, was yeah. what was happening. It was I I don't to me because it talks about you know in terms of your inability to stop breathing and I'm like you could film that you could explain that mm-hmm. without without uh, um, making it seem chintzy or or without needing that vis- visual part of it. But no, yeah, VX gas has no corrosive effects on on anybody. So all the skin melting that we see in different places it doesn't it uh yeah it's not accurate that might actually be a censorship thing you know um that it's actually you can show gore more easily than you can show suffering true true if you show someone asphyxiating you've got to show them gasping and that's horrible to watch hmm. um it's actually you can get a lower ironically enough get a lower age classification by showing someone skin melting off than you can by watch it showing asphyxiating as stupid as that sounds, that's actually how it works. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, that's that's horrifying, but not surprising. Um, the other thing from from the credits, because I did scroll right down to the bottom to see, you know, who is what kind of support did they get for this sure. film? Um, a little bit from the Department of the Interior. I can only guess that was for access to Alcatraz. That'd be my guess, because it's no longer Bureau of Prisons. So I guess that's that's what that's about. Uh, San Francisco Film Commission. San Francisco Port Commission, you know, just local San Francisco stuff, and the local PD, police department. But that was it. 
no federal agencies, perhaps unsurprisingly, given how they're depicted, uh, worked on this movie. Oh, except Department of Interior, but you know, who the hell are they? Um, which only goes to prove, yet again, you're better off making a film without the government if you can, uh, especially like DOD, FBI, any of those lot. Um, I know this film was somewhat diluted from the script, but there's still some subversive and controversial stuff in there, and there's still more there than just a schlocky action movie. So I think it's a pretty good example of that. And I'm sure everyone has seen this movie. I mean, come on, everyone's seen The Rock. Um, I don't think I've ever spoken, certainly everyone male. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's probably one thing we should mention. There are only two women in this film, and they solely serve the purpose of providing emotional backstory for males. <laughs> but, you know, this is the 1990s in Hollywood. They, they did a lot of this stuff. Um, saying that, they're still doing it. Peter Berg did the exact same thing on the, um, what's that oil rig movie? Deepwater Horizon. Mm. Yeah, so that kind of still hasn't moved on that far, or at least Michael Bay and Peter Berg haven't moved on. Um, let's wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, listeners, I hope that um, if you guys have the time to read more, both about The Rock, but also about some of the topics that we talked about today, um, especially about, you know, the use of napalm and white phosphorus, um, some of them may seem a little niche and something uh, only uh, an Annie War fellow like myself might point out, but they fit into the building blocks of how the U.S. military flight uh, fights and the excuses it makes to utilize horrific weapons, just like the X napalm and white phosphorus. Um, Tom, thank you as always for coming to chat me up about this. Um, will you uh, remind the good folks where they can find uh, find your work? Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me. And if people want to read or hear my voice more or watch any of my videos or any of the other stuff that I do. Check into spyculture.com. Pretty much everything I do is on there. And you have a uh, new book coming out. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly how soon, but I know it's sometime soon. I believe uh, December the third. December third. Apparently, 3rd. the publication date is available for pre-order. There are links and stuff on on spyculture.com if people do want to pre-order it or wait until December. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about that at some point in the run up to Christmas, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, dude. It sounds like uh, it sounds like an awesome read. Oh, me too. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks for uh, joining us today, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Take care. Whose history is told? When we watch a movie, we have to understand that the filmmakers get to decide how any mention or expression of the historical significance of a character a line a prop and so on it's demonstrated to the audience and people sponge it up they want to believe that these characters are a honest if difficult representation of historical fact but this is the kind of skepticism we should all be having when absorbing cultural products about history while others are lost thinking that they get a real telling of the story but instead find themselves seeing a rewritten or rebranded history, like listening to a Ken Burns documentary or reading about the 1619 Project or watching Hamilton. There's a topic that I wanted to mention about The Rock 
that I failed to discuss with Tom, and, and that involves the idea of human shields. American foreign policy, especially from the Civil War onward, has had policies that declare civilians on the battlefield to be human shields for one side or the other at times, even if there's simply civilians that are adjacent to forces in combat. This was especially important in, during the Vietnam War when U.S. forces declared civilians near V.C. to be using the people as human shields, and the United States needed a way to justify the deaths of those people when civilians happened to be nearby their, their chosen enemy targets. It's an underhanded way to characterize and devalue civilian lives, along with the insurgent forces who hide among the very people they're fighting for. I'm not defending the deliberate use of human shields by any combatant forces, but how it's characterized and used by U.S. and also very much so Israeli forces is well worth your time to study and understand. Um, there's a new book out called Human Shields, A History of People in the Line of Fire. It's by Dr. Nev Gordon and Nicola Paragini. It's a really amazing book. I would recommend it to everyone. It includes discussions of how the U.S. declared 100,000 Iraqi citizens to be human shields during the campaign against ISIS to retake Mosul, along with how Israel uses this contact concept to justify civilian deaths in their campaigns against Palestinians. I hope this was a really illuminating episode for you. While I enjoyed dissecting a film from my childhood that had elements to which I found truth as a kid, I'm far more excited by, uh, by finding the real truth within places where we expect to find little, if any, like a Michael Bay film. I hope fall is treating you all well, and uh, I hope you're looking forward to uh, the next two episodes that I previewed at the beginning of the episode. So please tune in again soon. It's Henry here at uh, Fortress on a Hill. Stay skeptical, folks. We'll see you next time. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget. Good people. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not do.